As the boys played King of the Hill in the north, God sent playground attendants out to try and get them in line. We're going to look at the first two of those, Elijah and Elisha. They don't get their own books in the Old Testament, though you could really call 1 Kings 17 through 2 Kings 13 the books of Elijah and Elisha. They're called prophets. We'll be looking at 17 prophets in the Old Testament that do get their own books. So let's talk a minute about what a prophet is. When you hear the word prophet, you probably think of the word prophecy, meaning to predict things in the future. And that's part of what prophets did. But the essence of the word means to speak before. The idea of prophecy comes from speaking before in terms of time, prediction. But more often, it was to speak before in terms of space, to address somebody, usually a religious or political ruler, and speak God's word on his behalf, to proclaim, in other words. We'll see both of these functions in the lives of these two major characters in the Old Testament, Elijah, and the young man he mentored, Elisha. We already met one prophet, Samuel, in the beginning of 1 Samuel. One more thing about prophets. In the Old Testament law, it's said to be a prophet of God. You had to be 100% accurate. Nostradamus and other people who made quite amazing predictions in the past certainly didn't have 100% accuracy. In fact, many are like broken clocks. They're right twice a day briefly. However, the Old Testament law said if prophets were speaking from God, they would be accurate 100% of the time. And if they weren't, they were a false prophet and they were to be put down. If that seems extreme, think of the damage that's done to people when lies and distortion are communicated in the name of God. We're going to look at two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. These are big shots in the Old Testament. I tell my students, remember, J comes before S, so we'll look at Elijah first and then Elisha second. Elijah shows up at the time of Ahab. Remember, Ahab was the bottom of the barrel in the northern kingdom. He was the worst of the worst. He and his sidekick Sidonian wife Jezebel. When Elijah first shows up, he prays for and predicts a drought on the land of Israel. The New Testament book of James tells us it lasts three and a half years, and it got extremely ugly. Elijah is told to flee to the Jordan River area and hide. Ahab wants his head. There we're told God feeds him with ravens bringing him food. When it gets too bad to survive there, he's told to flee to Sidon, to a Gentile woman who takes him in. Sidon, too, is on the fringes of this drought. She's got very little left, just a little oil and flour. But Elijah asks her to share what she has with him, promising that if she does, God will multiply her flour and oil and maintain her until the drought is over. She believes this prophet and his God, and that's exactly what happens. We're told shortly after that, her only son dies. Can you imagine being Elijah? The woman who's helped you, the Gentile in the midst of the worst drought, loses the only precious thing she has left, the son who'd provide for her when he grew up. We're not told what went through Elijah's head, but he cries out to God to raise this young man from the dead. It tells us he stretched himself over the child three times and cried out to God for his life, and God restored the child to life. If you've been following along, that's the first time that's happened. God raising something dead back to life. 
Elijah then returns to the Jezreel area where Ahab and Jezebel are hanging out. He presents himself to Ahab and challenges him to bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Ashtoreth, Mrs. Baal, to Mount Carmel for a showdown. This too makes the Sunday School Top 10 Stories list. The next day on Mount Carmel, with as many Israelites as could make it, Elijah outlines the rules of the contest. We'll each build an altar. We'll put wood on the altar and an ox on the wood. Then we'll cry out to our God, the God who sends fire on the altar, Baal, or the God of Israel. He is the true God. It's God versus God in a cage match on Carmel. Elijah lets the prophets of Baal win the coin toss and go first. We're told all morning long they cried out to Baal in increasing frenzy. Nothing happens. After a while, Elijah starts his God smack on Baal. Things like, cry a little louder. You know, maybe he's old and can't hear. Or he's on vacation or possibly going to the bathroom. At this point, the prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves until there's blood everywhere. Still nothing. About noon, Elijah says, that's enough, my turn. He instructs people to go get water from a nearby well, apparently one of the few that hadn't run dry yet. When they come with the water, they douse the sacrifice. He tells them to go back and refill three times. By the time they're finished, there's sitting water in the trench around the altar. Then Elijah says a simple prayer, O God of Israel, hear me. Demonstrate that you are the true God. Turn these people's hearts back to you. Fire falls from heaven, and not only the sacrifice, but the stones are burned up and the water in the trenches evaporated. The people watching from Israel fall to the ground saying, The God of Israel, he is God. Elijah orders the people to remove the cancer in Israel and to execute all 850 of the false prophets of Baal and Asherah. Having demonstrated who the real God is, Elijah then instructs Ahab to get back to Jezreel quick or he's going to get caught in a major thunderstorm. The Lord, who is God, is about to break this three and a half year drought. It comes up out of the Mediterranean, a small cloud that must have become a hurricane in a hurry. In the strength of the Spirit, Elijah does a half marathon and then some, a 17 mile run from Mount Carmel to Jezreel. But he doesn't anticipate what happens when he gets there. When Jezebel hears that the prophets of Baal have been shamed and then executed, she vows that Elijah's fate will be the same within 24 hours. Having faced down Ahab and 850 prophets, you'd think Elijah would just scoff at that. But truly, hell hath no fury like this woman scorned. So Elijah takes off on another run, a dead sprint south toward the wilderness. He doesn't stop until he gets to the southernmost point of Judah, Beersheba. We're not sure if it was coming off that mountaintop experience or his long, exhausting runs. But Elijah goes suicidal. He feels alone, isolated, hopeless. He asks God to take his life. Though my students have read about Abimelech asking someone to end him after being hit on the head with a millstone, and King Saul asking someone to finish him off when he's wounded, this is the first time they've run across a holy man of God in a suicidal state. So we have a little talk about hopelessness and suicide. I tell them about the only thing I remember from college psychology. 
It was an experiment with two groups of rats. Both were put into barrels of water. The first group was taken out after a couple of hours of swimming, dried off, played with, fed, warmed up, and then put back in the barrel to swim. The second group was just allowed to keep swimming. The first group, who had been pulled out, dried off, fed, warmed up, and put back in, swam, I believe, for a number of days, as I recall, for nearly a week. The group that hadn't been pulled out and dried off swam for only a few hours before drowning. They got the same results in repeated experiments. Their conclusion was this. The rats in the first barrel had an expectation of rescue. The rats in the second barrel felt helpless and hopeless and gave up. We then have a discussion about hopelessness and isolation and how to reach out for help or reach out to a friend who's experiencing that before it's too late. God reaches out to suicidal Elijah in the wilderness with three things. He gives him two nights of deep rest. Angels make him two large meals to nourish him. And then God says, you need a friend. Go and anoint Elisha to be your sidekick. God also gives him a to-do list. Go to Damascus and anoint Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, king over Israel, to do some house cleaning on the line of Ahab. On his way north, he picks up Elisha. By the way, Elijah means Jehovah is God. This is beautifully ironic. Elisha's name means God is salvation. In the case of these two prophets, their names themselves are a message from God to the nation of Israel. When Elijah meets Elisha, Elisha's out plowing in the field. Elijah says, come be my sidekick. Elisha agrees and burns his tractor. Well, sacrifices his oxen and has a going away party with his family. With Elisha as his sidekick, we next meet Elijah in Naboth's vineyard. He's there to meet Ahab. This is the vineyard Ahab wanted for his garden. Naboth is the man Jezebel has falsely accused and has been stoned to death. Ahab's there to check out his new piece of property. Elijah confronts him. Guess what, Ahab? Dogs are going to lick up your blood at the same place they licked up Naboth's. Furthermore, every male in your family is dead meat. What happened to Jeroboam's family? That's your family's fate as well. And Jezebel gets to be puppy chow too. Elijah then shows up to Ahab's son, Ahaziah. He's the guy who fell through the roof and is sick in bed. He's the one who sends messengers to seek counsel about his prognosis from the god of Ekron. Elijah meets those messengers and says, I can answer that for you. Go back and tell your master he's dead. You should have sought counsel from the real God. It's time for Elijah to exit. He tells Elisha he's going to be leaving him soon and asks Elisha if he can do anything for him. Elisha asks for a double portion of his spirit. They walk together to the Jordan and Elijah pulls his cloak off and strikes the water. It says the water split and they walked across. On the other side, Elijah exits. We're told God's bellboy on a chariot comes from heaven and hauls him off. While that's unique, it's not unprecedented. We skipped over this in Genesis 4 through 6. But during that time, someone else was carried off to heaven. His name was Enoch. It says there, Enoch walked with God and was no more, for God took him. We'll see when we get to the New Testament. God transports someone else off planet Earth without the process of death. 
And in the prophecies of our future, it sounds like God will do that again with many. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. A couple more things on Elijah before we move to Elisha. Malachi predicts that right before the stomper would come, a forerunner would come to announce his coming. That forerunner would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. We've also mentioned in the life of Moses that Elijah was star-trekked in with Moses to a mountain to meet Jesus as a representative of the prophets who spoke of the coming stomper. Elijah is a big, big shot in the Old Testament, and he was sent to the north as a playground attendant to wake them up and turn their hearts back to the true God. Now, Elisha. Elijah's mantle fell as the chariot carried him off and Elisha picks it up. But would the power of Elijah come with it? Elisha would soon find out. He goes to the Jordan River to cross back over and strikes it with the mantle, and it divides. You'll realize that Elisha actually did do twice as many signs as Elijah. Other than Jesus in the New Testament, no other character does as many miracles as Elisha. Some of them are large, some of them seem very small and insignificant. But let's address the one that makes skeptics roll their eyes, and some even reject the God of the Old Testament. It says that shortly after Elijah left, some young lads, 42 of them, start teasing Elisha. They taunt, go up, you bald head, go up. Elisha cursed them in the name of God, and two bears came out of the woods and mauled all 42 of these lads. I mean... That does sound pretty extreme. Little kids killed for teasing this prophet about needing some Rogaine? I explained two things to my students. The first is the age of these little kids. The Hebrew allows these to be as old as young teenagers. The bigger issue is in the taunt, not the bald head, but the go up. Go up. What are they saying? Who's just gone up? Elijah. The text suggests, get out of here. Like your master, get out of here. We don't want you. Go away. Elijah and Elisha were sent by God with a message, turn around. I love you. There's consequences for your misbehavior. And they're saying, get lost. We don't want to hear you. Go away. I asked my students to assume these young lads were their age, 13. What does that say about their trajectory when they deal with God's representatives this way? Elisha next shows up when the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom align to fight Moab. They're lost in the wilderness, and they get Elisha to help them. Elisha says, I'd tell you to drop dead except for Jehoshaphat here, the Judean king. I have respect for him. Elisha tells them to dig trenches, and the next day there'll be water in them to quench their thirst. We're then introduced to a woman of Shunem who has the gift of hospitality. She takes Elisha in every time he comes through town. In fact, they build on a guest room for Elisha. After numerous trips, Elisha asks his servant, What can we do for this dear lady? His servant reminds him, Her husband's old and she doesn't have a child. We should see if we could get a child for her. Elisha tells her, We're asking God to give you a baby. She bristles. Don't even tease me like that. But God does give her a baby. And we're told when that child grows up, one day experiences something, maybe an aneurysm or a sunstroke. He tells daddy in the field, my head, he's taken home to his mother and dies in her lap. She lays the child on a bed and goes to Elisha. Can you imagine being Elisha? 
This is deja vu to the kind widow from Sidon who loses her son. Elisha returns to her house and raises the little boy from the dead. And that's a pretty big deal. After such a big deal, his next two miracles seem rather trifle. The cook throws poisonous gourds into the stew. Elisha heals the stew so it's edible. Out with those same prophets getting wood, one of the axe heads flies off into the Jordan River. The prophet borrowed it from somebody. Elisha raises the axe head to the surface of the water. I ask my students, why would God use miraculous powers for such trifle things? Perhaps because he cares about the trifle things of our lives. You'll read about Elisha healing the leper Naaman. You'll also read about Aram trying to find Elisha, who keeps telling the kings of Israel what Aram is about to do. Surrounded by Aramean troops in Dothan, Elisha asked God to open the eyes of his servants so that he can see surrounding them were chariots of fire and God's angels protecting them. When Samaria is under siege by the Arameans, Elisha predicts that the next day the siege will be broken, and God does that very thing. He anoints Jehu as king and reminds him to clean house on Ahab's family as, as God had prophesied through Elijah. And Elisha's last act is to meet with evil King Joash. Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God cares about the deeply wicked but desperately suffering Israel. Two men, Jehovah is God and God is salvation, Elijah and Elisha, invest their lives in the northern kingdom as playground attendants, warning the kings on the hill to straighten up, to remove the false gods, to follow the law of God and to love the Lord their God. Will it matter? Would their ministries be fruitful? We'll discover the answer to that in our next word picture.